Our great God, we thank you that uh, uh, becoming a Christian and learning how to live for you is not getting a bunch of rules, but learning how to follow a king, as we've just sung. Thank you that it's a fantastic thing to learn how to be like someone else. And we pray you help us to learn about Jesus tonight from uh, a long time before he was born and help us to treasure him as we study the Bible tonight. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So here we go. Levitic, uh, Exodus chapter 40 and verse 16. We've had uh, special instructions given to make a tent called a tabernacle. And so they made it. Chapter 40 verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. The first month, the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put up its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. He put in place a screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went to the tent of the meeting. When they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 
And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. Well, let's make a start. We've had the reading, we've had the prayer. And I guess the big question is this. What would you say is the meaning of life? It's one of these big questions. A granny was telling me this week that her 16-year-old grandson had spoken to her and she said the real thing that he's trying to do is to find himself. And it's one of these things that uh, people want to do. They want to find out why on earth they happen to be put on this planet. What's the purpose of their lives? Now, I guess a grandson who's 16 will ask that question because generally what happens when you get to your late teens is you've been in the school system for which you had no choice whatsoever, but now that you're getting to the end of the school system and you've got to make some career choices you start beginning to think, well, well, why am I here? What am I to do? What's the purpose of my life? And as you go older and the answers aren't there, I guess when you become more middle-aged, you begin to say, well, okay, I'll take a functional view of this. Whatever my function is, I guess that's my purpose. If I'm a mum, well, my purpose in life is to look after these kids. And you kind of live from day to day and it's a time consuming thing and so what happens is that you actually end up working hard and getting busy every day time flies and you find yourself basically defining the purpose of life as one mad meaningless dash from Monday to Monday and when Monday comes you can start the mad meaningless dash all over again until the next Monday comes that's what life is like for most people in London and there you are you see we're on the hamster wheel except we're not hamsters but the hamsters are always running the human versions are the real hamsters rest but I was speaking to a young guy he's 22 today he's from Moldova and he says he doesn't like resting, he just wants to make money. And so, he's on the wheel. Well, we're going to be looking back and saying, is that really the purpose of what human beings were made to do? Is that what our lives are really meant to be about? But the strange thing you might find is that we're going to learn and think about that fairly big 20th century question. Looking at a bunch of people who once made a tent in a desert. Doesn't look like that. The tent that they made had lots of other things in it. But that's what they were making at the end of Exodus, the book that we've just read. They once before uh, this, at the start of the book, we got to the end of it today, but at the start of the book we started off where they were actually more like this. There were slaves in Egypt. And let me tell you, those guys, they were 4,000 years ago, but they still knew the mad, meaningless dash 
from Monday to Monday. That's all they did, make bricks. That was their job. But God rescued them and we began to look at their story on the 23rd of October last year. And every Sunday we've been there for just one, basically one year, isn't it? And one week short of a year. And every Sunday we've been with them and following their journey through one chapter after another chapter we've gone along with them and we've got to the climax tonight and the interesting thing about the climax that we'll see tonight is that when God saved them from Egypt it wasn't to take them to a better place and a better life most people want that don't they if you ask people you know what do you think of Dagnan well we'd much rather have a better place we'd much rather have a better life but it's interesting, these slaves weren't taken out of Egypt to, you know, somewhere uh, uh, pleasant and where life is good. The journey ends for them, not in a place, but with a person. The climax of Exodus, the great destination this book arrives at, is God's people actually with God. And uh, that's what you see in uh, this uh, wonderful book. And as they come to see what God is like, as they themselves discover what a new life with God is like, you learn two things. First, you learn that these people are amazingly obedient. And you see that in the way that they built this tent. And in fact, the last ending of this book, remember there's 40 chapters, from chapter 25 onwards to 40, that's a big chunk, they've been making this tent. First they got instructions on how to do it, and then they finally do it, and they do it just as they were commanded. Again, again, you saw that, didn't you? And that's basically what uh, this final ending of the book is like, in order that they could actually then live with God. Because it's much more than a tent. When you look at what they put into that tent, I probably read things to you in the lampstand and things, and you probably may not have thought much of that. But actually, what was going into that tent was actually to show you that this tent is meant to be teaching us about heaven, what heaven would be like. And not just is it a look forward to the future, it begins with all the different things in it that actually were there in the Garden of Eden. Now, I can't go through all the list and explain all that again, but if you go back to our website and uh, you go to uh, the talk we did on uh, the 18th of September um, and uh, uh, you'll find that uh, uh, it was all written up there. We'll have a little pause while uh, uh, the kids go through. Okay, uh, so we're going to uh, pick up that bit where uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's more than a tent. It's a signpost to what heaven's like and to what 
the Garden of Eden was like. Uh, I don't know if any Star Trek, uh, not Star Trek, uh, any Doctor Who fans around. Uh, anyone heard? Oh, right, you've heard the TARDIS. And there's loads of stuff in the TARDIS, isn't there? Well, let me tell you that this tent is a lot more than what you see. It's, it's a time machine. It takes you back to the Garden of Eden. It takes you forward to uh, what heaven will be like. We'll see that by the end. But when you look at the end of the book of Exodus and learn about this tent, you discover that those last chapters break down into two blocks. Between chapters 25 and 31, you get instructions about how to make the tent. And then the last bit, 35 to 40, is how they actually carried out those instructions and did the job. You with me? Instruction, construction. That's how the last bit breaks down. And the whole point of this tent, as I said, is so that God and his people could be together and stay together. And if you want to see that uh, in black and white, We'll turn to chapter 25, it's on page 65, just a couple of pages back. And chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell or live in their midst. Okay, that's the intention of God, that he wants to be with his people. And for that to happen, they have to express their relationship to him with absolute obedience in verse 9 exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all his furniture exactly so you shall make it and so that's what they do they make it exactly as they were instructed who's jeep ah sorry Ah, don't worry, don't worry. Uh, right. <clears throat> yeah, well, they had this uh, 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 tent that was more like a TARDIS, and we've got a church that's more like Piccadilly Circus. Um, but we're going to play a game on this to, to see that actually there was exact, things were made exactly as they said. You know, in 40. I emphasize it again and again the way I read it that it was everything done exactly the big tick was there again and again and again let's play again so let's say uh, Debbie um, uh, you read one after the other these verses but wait and then uh, let's say George you read these verses one after the other okay so let's start off um by you reading Exodus 25:31, it says, "You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it." That's instruction. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made a lampstand of hammered work, its blades, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were one of the piece with it. 
exact construction. More instruction. And they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet glass, and of fine twined linen, filthy words. Exodus 28, verse 6. Instruction. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Exodus 39, 2. Exact construction. Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Instruction. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be in one piece with it. Exodus chapter 37, verse 25. Construction. He made the altar of incense of acacia, of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. Now those are just snippets, but the point is made by, by just giving it loads of space, loads of chapters, 25 to 31, instruction, 35 to 40, construction to show that absolutely every detail that God said, they carried out exactly as God commanded Moses. Okay? And so therefore there is this constant uh, instruction and perfect match with construction. Why did they do that? Well, if you were here before, you might realize that between chapter 31 and chapter 35, you had not perfect obedience, you had perfect disobedience. They worshipped a golden calf, they did exactly what they were told not to do, and that whole episode takes up chapters 32 to 34. Now, before the golden calf episode, they had vowed that they would obey God, my word, whatever God said they would do. Look, just go back to chapter 20 and you will see that uh, on, in sorry, chapter 19 uh, in uh, verse uh, 8. Uh, that's on page 60. Uh, there's uh, uh, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in Exodus chapter 24, uh, they said uh, in verse uh, 3, that's on page 65. Moses came and told people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, Go on, answer with one voice and say, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And if you can answer with one voice and say all over again in verse 7, he took, Moses took the book of the covenant and read to the hearing of the people. And they said, Ah, those were words that were said and said and said and then up comes the golden calf and they've gone and obeyed or disobeyed everything that they said that they would do. So, but now, the point is made that they are past that and now they are obeying God <coughs> completely. Now, we know the story doesn't end with the happy ending in Exodus chapter 40. The book goes on as the Bible is read and you see that they did disobey God again and quite seriously too. But uh, this is a picture of perfect obedience as God's people listen and respond to God 
as we should. And this is the point, you see, that you know that God has got his hand on someone. Not by goosebumps that they might have or special feelings that they might feel. You know exactly when God has got his hand on someone because they start wanting to obey him like this. Even if they don't pull it off all the time, this is the burning, driving ambition that all that the Lord has commanded we will do. And so you have an amazing response of God's people to God being obedient to him. But also we see at the end there is this wonderful description of God's presence with his people. Now, forgive that drawing, it's a little bit irreverent, um, because God's a man, but I want you to get the point that actually the whole deal about the God of the Bible is that he wants to be with people, to be with his people. That is the simple summing up of God if you read the Bible and get him right. All the other options available, the other gods on the planet, if you like, uh, with the little g, uh, they might send a prophet or two to tell you how to behave better, how to be religious people. But this God is not like anything similar to that. This is a God who wants to be with his people, to be present in their lives. And that is uh, the big le lesson that you find as you go through the Bible. He loves to be where his people are. Now, please, it's not because God is needy and he just needs people around him because otherwise, dear God, you know what it's like. He gets a bit lonely. No, it's not like that. Because the Bible tells us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In himself, in other words, God is a perfect community of love. doesn't need anybody else to feel loved. But the reason why God created people is to show you what love looks like. If God is love and perfectly self-contained in his love, then you won't know what love's like. But when you see God creating a universe, you then discover that love is not directed into yourself. Love is directed outwards towards other people. And so, God makes a world, a universe, to show you how love can be expressed. That's the reason why God made the world as he did. He makes people show what love is like. And in the Garden of Eden, when he made the world, he made people not just so that they would have a good time and enjoy some good stuff in the Garden of Eden, but the whole wonderful experience of the Garden of Eden is that there would be God walking with man in the cool of the day, as it's put. God with people right from the start he is there to be 
give them himself, not just his gifts. And let me tell you that ever since the Garden of Eden, the worst mistakes that people have ever made in their lives have simply been made because they have forgotten that God is there. They've lost sight of the presence of God and then that's when the mistakes start cascading in. So, uh, there's lots of places I could take you to show you that. Uh, I'm just going to flick through to... uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 47 verse 10 I'll tell you the page it is the minute I land on it myself uh, Isaiah chapter 47 thank you very much there's always faster people in this church than I am uh, page 608 page 608 it's pretty much uh, bang in the middle of the book uh, but Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10 where God's people are told, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you, but I'm afraid they led you astray. Why? You said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. And again and again the Bible says, you, you didn't think God would see that, did you? You didn't think he was looking. And that's the point at which Adam and Eve uh, failed God because they were all eyes on a particular temptation that they wanted that was being put in front of them and they just forgot that God was there. And as a result of that, they lost the presence of God. They were pushed out of the garden. And they were given up to a life without God, which seems to be what they were choosing when they acted as if he wasn't there in the first place. And that's when life, I guess, first became a mad, meaningless dash from Monday to Monday as they struggled to survive. And that's London today, isn't it? And yet, what God did is he started with a new person and he chose a man called Abraham and he said that Abraham was going to be the start of a special group of people that God would consider and take to himself to be his own people and he would be with them always the big prize God would be with them And so no surprise that when you start the book of Exodus and you see God talking to Moses, what does God tell Moses right at the start? If you wind back the clock to chapter 3 and verse 12, you see God telling Moses, I will be with you. And you know that I'll be with you because I'm going to bring you to this mountain and you get to Exodus chapter 40. So there's this presence of God that is going to be with Moses and ultimately Moses who realized the presence of God will also be with all his people and he knows that God is with him. And that's basically what God did right through the book of the Exodus. He gets them out of Egypt where they were slaves and he's constantly with them. He's there with them in a pillar of uh, 
cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, He is always there with them. And this tent, this tabernacle they are building, is so that they will know that wherever they go, this is going to be the symbol of God's presence with them all the time as they go to this new country that God promised them. And when they get to the new country that God promised them, they build not just a mobile home, which is what the tabernacle is, they can pick it up and carry it. They're going to make a big temple and the temple is going to be the same proportionate size as the tabernacle. It's just double the size of it. But it's to show that the presence of God is firmly fixed in the land and in the lives of his people. And so you see in chapter 40 and verse 34, the cloud covers the tenth meeting and the glory of God fills the tabernacle and God is here with his people and that's great, isn't it? Well, kind of. What's not great? Tell me, what's the problem if you look at verse 35? God's there, but hmm, everybody's chucked out. Even Moses is evicted. No one can stay. Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the clouds settled around the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And even Moses is outside. God's favorite, right through this book. Can't go in. Now, later, um, he can't go. Later, it's true as the story goes on, the priests were able to go in. But when the priests went in, what they found out is that in the middle of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in other words, the special area <coughs> that was the God zone, that was particularly associated with God's presence, no one could go in there. There was this whacking great big tent, uh, curtain. And if you read about the curtain, it's just wonderfully ornate, it's rich, it's thick, it's, it's built to last. And you can see it uh, referred to, with it gets a special mention um, in uh, Exodus uh, 40 uh, and uh, verse 22. He put the table t- uh, outside the veil. Now where's the veil appearing? Um, uh, verse 21 yeah and he brought the ark of the temple and set up the veil of the screen that was the you will not pass this point moment in the whole construction <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> but thick as it was rich as it was beautiful as it was let me tell you that the whole point of this veil being put in this temple, that tabernacle, was so that one day it would be absolutely ripped from top to bottom. And when you go into the New Testament, both Matthew and Mark, who describe uh, what it was like when Jesus died, they tell you exactly what happened to that curtain. So if you just look up uh, Matthew, it's the first book of the uh, New Testament, uh, chapter 27, verse 51, on page 835, 
So, 834. Page 834. Matthew 27, verse 51. 835. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the, tab, the, tab, the, the curtain was taken out of the way, and now anyone can walk in. It's like when Jesus died on the cross, God pushed him out of his presence, so that now anyone can come into his presence, because Jesus paid for entry for anyone to walk in. And in a wonderful way, it shows us what the whole purpose and plan of God is like, so that his people can be with him before. It couldn't happen in Exodus chapter 40 because Moses couldn't come in. It seemed like God could live with his people. Okay, that seems to happen at Exodus 40, but God's people can't live with him. God can live with his people, but his people can't live with him. After the death of Jesus, God's with his people and they can live with him. The doorway is open and uh, ripped apart so that no one is going to make that again. And so it's a wonderful uh, truth that as God's presence right through the Old Testament with his people, then with the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 14 actually says in Jesus the word made flesh and tabernacled among us Jesus was showing how God loves being with his people and he died on the cross to make that possible for all time and therefore when you get to the climax of history where this world's heading for if you could just press the zoom button and go right to the very end of the line, what do you find? Well, the end of the Bible is not difficult to find, is it? It's right at the end, so you can go and check up and have a look. Uh, but keep a finger in Exodus chapter 40 and go to Revelation chapter 21. That incidentally is the last book of the Bible, the end of the line. And in Exodus chapter 21 verse 3, page 10. 1041 Exodus chapter 21 verse 3 and John is looking at the future looking into it, seeing a vision of it and he reports I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Guys, get this. We're not heading for a special place. With good stuff. We're heading for a life with a God who loves his people and loves being with them. And that is the whole purpose. That's why it's interesting, isn't it, 
how the tabernacle shows you what heaven is like. Because in, if you're in chapter 21 and you have a look uh, in verses 15 to 17 and you see that uh, this time uh, we're not talk, speak about a tent, it, it's, got, it's a community so it's described as a city but when the city is measured it has the same dimensions as the Holy of Holies. Um, uh, same proportionate rather. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, uh, and uh, uh, the length and the width and the height are equal. So the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle was uh, uh, a cube. Same, same uh, uh, length, same breadth, same height. And now the city is described as a cube. In other words, um, uh, all the people of God are living in the presence of God in that Holy of Holies uh, sized measurement. And you can see, if you just glance on a, a couple of verses again, that uh, just like the tabernacle is made of uh, jewels and gold, so is the city made of jewels and gold. Uh, verses 18 to 21 the walls were, the wall was built of jasper the city was pure gold like clear glass the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel the first was jasper the second sapphire the third agate the fourth of emerald fifth onyx sixth carnelian seventh chrysolite eighth beryl ninth topaz tenth uh, chrysoprase uh, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst and the twelve gates had uh, uh, jewels on there too. Just as the inside of the tabernacle was gold and with precious stones, so the city, the people of God living in, 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 in heaven, described with the tabernacle point of these guys are now with God himself. So temple is really, as I said at the start, a visual aid of the culmination of uh, God's purposes. And if you want to see where the different references are, uh, there they are. So, you see what you're going to learn at the end of Exodus is that God doesn't just simply rescue his people out of slavery and now you can get on with life. He rescues people out of slavery in order that he might now be very close to them and live with them. And then, ultimately, living with him. Now, my friends, if you wanted to take anything home from this evening and you can't remember too much because you're getting near to Verona's age and it happens when you get there, um, then the thing that you do is just remember, this is what God has promised. This is what the history of the world is heading for, that God will one day be with his people. Not everyone, with his people. And that is what uh, the longing of uh, our future uh, would be uh, if we could um, uh, hold on to and believe what the Bible says. But it may be that that's a bit general, and you want something specific. So, what happens if tonight you're sat there, you're listening to this on our website, and you know in your heart of hearts you are not a Christian? 
Well, let me tell you what the purpose of your life is. It is not to basically live a mad, meaningless dash from Monday to Monday. My friends, you were never put on this planet just to survive. You were made to not just um, uh, see that God is the giver of good gifts. You weren't even made to enjoy God's good gifts. You weren't made to enjoy your kids, if I can put it like that. Not as your primary purpose of life. You were made for God to be with you and for you to live with him. And the worst decisions of your life, if you're honest, you can look back and you can think about them, let them replay in your mind for a minute. The worst decisions of your life are because you've forgotten God that is there. And the best decisions of your life will be when you understand that the blessings of God are not just that he is there, but that you live as if he is there in perfect obedience of him. That is what a Christian is. They value the fact that God is now in their lives. They live their lives now in front of God for his glory in perfect obedience. My friends, if that is a new direction that you want to take for your life, you will only be stepping in with the original purpose that God has intended for you. So why not ask him for help? Why not cry to him right now, right tonight and say, God, I haven't lived the way you wanted me to live in my life. I've missed out on the whole purpose I was made for. Please, will you let me, uh, will you come and live with me? Will you let me live with you because Jesus died for me? And please, will you bless my life with that perfect obedience that looks like him? What happens if you've been to church lots? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you can look at the tabernacle and you can say, well, I can see, understand what the tabernacle is all about. It's that you have this place and lots of people go into the tabernacle and they get very busy and they do stuff for God and God must be happy with that, mustn't he? Isn't that what the tabernacle is about? That people go off and do ministry and service inside the, tab- inside the tent. And so what happens is you develop a Christianity that is basically about Sundays and about doing stuff and singing choirs and don't understand why people make such a big thing of singing choirs, but uh, I think it's certain African choir, African choirs, you know, they sing in the choir. Golly wow whiz. Um, let me tell you, uh, when I was a little boy, I was made to sing in the choir. I hated every minute of it. Um, don't go there if you can help it at all. Uh, God did not, um, let me tell you from personal experience, make little boys to be dressed up in ruffles and to sing in house voices. Okay? God made little boys to play football and to fight. Um, and uh, it is... It is uh, but people have this... Si- what? <laughs> but the, 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 the whole point is this, you see, that 
that actually be, we kind of stuff we think we, we, we think that doing stuff in religious places is is what being Christian is all about seriously it isn't and Jesus made that point once really well when he was talking to a couple of sisters and there was one sister called Martha who was so busy doing stuff for God that she was only doing stuff for God and then there was Mary and she said frankly I just want to sit with you be with you, listen to you I just love your presence and I think that actually there are a lot of people who have come from churches where yeah, it's the busy button that they keep pressing and it's just actually really helpful for people who are in church to actually know what, the, what matters. I need to recalibrate my priorities. The big deal for me is that God wants to be with me. And I want to be with God and listen to him and listen to what he tells me about his love for me in his word, the Bible. But what about if you are uh, a believer and uh, you understand that uh, God, his great desire, the God of the Bible, is just basically to draw you close. There's a lot in the Bible that tells you that that's actually the thing that is important. That's why the Bible has this kind of break built into life where you can stop working and stop getting distracted and just understand that God made us to be with him. That's what the Sabbath was created to be at the end of the creation of the world. God made the Sabbath and he got man to enter into the Sabbath with him. That they have time together. Now, that is actually what God wants from you. You and him. Enjoying the relationship that he intends you to have. And to look forward one day to the fact that actually you will be with him. Your future will be full of him and he will be uh, in uh, the centre of life in a way that he just will not be until that day comes that is a great lesson you are saved not just to carry on life you are saved for the presence of God but let me tweak that just a little bit further because this building project took a long part of Exodus from chapters 25 to 40 and that building project actually spreads through the whole of the Old Testament they make the tabernacle here they'll eventually go on to make the temple that takes a whole load of space too this building project is non-stop and then what happens with the temple is it gets knocked down by the enemies they've got to build it all up again I tell you this building project with building up the tabernacle, then the temple, does take a lot of time in the Old Testament, like it takes a lot of time in the Exodus. But when you get into the New Testament, there is a new building project, this time no longer to do with buildings, but to do with people. And the New Testament building project for the church, the church is involved in page after page, is to build up a people in which God dwells. That's the temple that we have today. And it's very interesting that at the end of 
Matthew's Gospel. When Jesus talks to his disciple one last time, he says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And then he promises his presence and I will be with you even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you now. But it's a promise that is tied up to a church that is evangelizing. That is going out to uh, uh, make disciples of all nations. My friends, if we forget that, what we will end up being is a church that thinks that somehow God is going to be present with us only if we get our worship right. If we sing the right songs, if we uh, just uh, bring up the right feelings, well then God's presence, we really felt God's presence tonight. That's not a Bible way to think. Really it isn't. Worship doesn't bring you God's presence. Evangelism does. When you go out and you meet people who are not Christians and you're Christian and you suddenly discover that God is rescuing people out of slavery into a new life of obedience with him, then you understand God is present with us. Because that's what we're able to do. We've gone out, we've made disciples of all nations and he is present with us in that task. So, those instructions, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, those, those are the instructions that we are to carefully obey. And as we go out and do that, and do the construction of what Jesus wants us, the building up of his people in number and in maturity, then his presence will be with us even to the end of the age. And that is the purpose of the church. And that is the purpose of everyone that God has made his friends. It is so that we enjoy God's presence. It is that we help other people to come into that enjoyment as well. But let me pray at that point and uh, we'll... Uh, take questions in a moment, but let me give a minute individually for people to pray first. But our minute's gone, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing truth that you rescue us from slavery to see your glory. And we pray as a church that you will show us your glory as you add to your kingdom showing that you are present with us. And we pray that you will show us your glory finally when we see you face to face in your kingdom. And we do pray for that. Show us your glory, Lord. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.